Chapters three to four of Book five of Toilers of the Sea, Part one. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Adams. Toilers of the Sea, Part one, Sieur Clubin, by Victor Hugo. Translated by W. Moy Thomas. Book five, The Revolver. Chapter three. Clubin carries away something and brings back nothing. Sieur Clubin completed the loading of the Durande, embarked a number of cattle and some passengers, and left St. Malo for Guernsey, as usual, on the Friday morning. On that same Friday, when the vessel had gained the open, which permits the captain to absent himself a moment from the place of command, Clubin entered his cabin, shut himself in, took a travelling bag which he kept there, put into one of its compartments some biscuit, some boxes of preserves, a few pounds of chocolate in sticks, a chronometer, and a sea telescope, and passed through the handles a cord, ready prepared to sling it if necessary. Then he descended into the hold, went into the compartment where the cables are kept, and was seen to come up again with one of those knotted ropes, heavy with pieces of metal, which are used for ship caulkers at sea, and by robbers ashore. Cords of this kind are useful in climbing. Having arrived at Guernsey, Clubin repaired to Torteval. He took with him the travelling bag and the knotted cord, but did not bring them back again. Let us repeat once for all, the Guernsey which we are describing is that ancient Guernsey which no longer exists, and of which it would be impossible to find a parallel now anywhere except in the country. There it is still flourishing, but in the towns it has passed away. The same remarks apply to Jersey. St. Helier's is as civilized as Dieppe, St. Peter's Port as Lorient. Thanks to the progress of civilization, thanks to the admirably enterprising spirit of that brave island people, everything has been changed during the last forty years in the Norman archipelago. Where there was darkness, there is now light. With these premises, let us proceed. At that period, then, which is already so far removed from us as to have become historical, smuggling was carried on very extensively in the channel the smuggling vessels abounded particularly on the western coast of guernsey people of that peculiarly clever kind who know even in the smallest details what went on half a century ago will even cite you the names of these suspicious craft which were almost always australians or guiposians it is certain that a week scarcely ever passed without one or two being seen either in saint's bay or at Plémont. their coming and going had almost the character of a regular service a cavern in the cliffs at sark was called then and is still called the shops les boutiques from its being the place where these smugglers made their bargains with the purchasers of their merchandise this sort of traffic had in the channel a dialect of its own a vocabulary of contraband technicalities now forgotten and which was to the spanish what the levantine is to the italian on many parts of the english coast smuggling had a secret but cordial understanding with legitimate and open commerce it had access to the house of more than one great financier by the back stairs it is true and its influence extended itself mysteriously through all the commercial world and the intricate ramifications of manufacturing industry 
merchant on one side smuggler on the other such was the key to the secret of many great fortunes Sagin affirmed it of bourguin bourguin of Sagin. we do not vouch for their accusations it is possible that they were calumniating each other however this may have been it is certain that the contraband trade though hunted down by the law was flourishing enough in certain financial circles it had relations with the very best society thus the brigand mondrin in other days found himself occasionally tete-a-tete with the count of charolais for this underhand trade often contrived to put on a very respectable appearance kept a house of its own with an irreproachable exterior all this necessitated a host of manoeuvres and connivances which required impenetrable secrecy a contrabandist was entrusted with a good many things and knew how to keep them secret an inviolable confidence was the condition of his existence the first quality in fact in a smuggler was strict honour in his own circle no discreetness no smuggling fraud has its secrets like the priest's confessional these secrets were indeed as a rule faithfully kept the contrabandist swore to betray nothing and he kept his word nobody was more trustworthy than the genuine smuggler the judge alcad of oyarzen captured a smuggler one day and put him to torture to compel him to disclose the name of the capitalist who secretly supported him the smuggler refused to tell the capitalist in question was the judge alcad himself of these two accomplices the judge and the smuggler the one had been compelled in order to appear in the eyes of the world to fulfil the law to put the other to the torture which the other had patiently borne for the sake of his oath the two most famous smugglers who haunted Plainmont at that period were blasco and blasquito they were tocayos this was a sort of spanish or catholic relationship which consisted in having the same patron saint in heaven a thing it will be admitted not less worthy of consideration than having the same father upon earth when a person was initiated into the furtive ways of the contraband business nothing was more easy or from a certain point of view more troublesome it was sufficient to have no fear of dark nights to repair to Plainmont and to consult the oracle located there chapter four Plainmont. Plainmont, near Torteval, is one of the three corners of the island of Guernsey. At the extremity of the cape there rises a high, turfy hill which looks over the sea. The height is a lonely place, all the more lonely from there being one solitary house there. This house adds a sense of terror to that of solitude. It is popularly believed to be haunted. Haunted or not, its aspect is singular built of granite and rising only one story high it stands in the midst of the grassy solitude it is in a perfectly good condition as far as exterior is concerned the walls are thick and the roof is sound not a stone is wanting in the sides not a tile upon the roof a brick-built chimney-stack forms the angle of the roof the building turns its back to the sea being on that side merely a blank wall on examining this wall however attentively the visitor perceives a little window bricked up 
the two gables have three dormer windows one fronting the east the others fronting the west but both are bricked up in like manner the front which looks inland has alone a door and windows this door too is walled in as are also the two windows of the ground floor on the first floor and this is the feature which is most striking as you approach there are two open windows but these are even more suspicious than the blind windows their open squares look dark even in broad day for they have no panes of glass or even window frames they open simply upon the dusk within they strike the imagination like hollow eye sockets in a human face inside all is deserted through the gaping casements you may mark the ruin within no panellings no woodwork all bare stone it is like a windowed sepulchre giving liberty to the spectres to look out upon the daylight world the rains sap the foundations on the seaward side a few nettles shaken by the breeze flourish in the lower part of the walls far around the horizon there is no other human habitation the house is a void the abode of silence but if you place your ear against the wall and listen you may distinguish a confused noise now and then like the flutter of wings over the walled door upon the stone which forms its architrave are sculptured these letters elm pilg with the date seventeen eighty the dark shadow of night and the mournful light of the moon find entrance there the sea completely surrounds the house its situation is magnificent but for that reason its aspect is more sinister the beauty of the spot becomes a puzzle why does not a human family take up its abode there the place is beautiful the house well built whence this neglect to these questions obvious to the reason succeed others suggested by the reverie which the place inspires why is this cultivatable garden uncultivated no master for it and the bricked-up doorway what has happened to this place why is it shunned by men what business is done here if none why is there no one here is it only when all the rest of the world are asleep that some one in this spot is awake dark squalls wild winds birds of prey strange creatures unknown forms present themselves to the mind and connect themselves somehow with this deserted house for what class of wayfarers can this be the hostelry you imagine to yourself whirlwinds of rain and hail beating in at the open casements and wandering through the rooms tempests have left their vague traces upon the interior walls the chambers though walled and covered in are visited by the hurricanes has the house been the scene of some great crime you may almost fancy that this spectral dwelling given up to solitude and darkness might be heard calling aloud for succour does it remain silent do voices indeed issue from it what business has it on hand in this lonely place the mystery of the dark hours rests securely here its aspect is disquieting at noonday what must it be at midnight the dreamer asks himself for dreams have their coherence what this house may be between the dusk of evening and the twilight of approaching dawn 
Has the vast supernatural world some relation with this deserted height, which sometimes compels it to arrest its movements here, and to descend, and to become visible? Do the scattered elements of the spirit world whirl around it? Does the impalpable take form and substance here? Insoluble riddles! A holy awe is in the very stones. That dim twilight has surely relations with the infinite unknown. When the sun has gone down, the song of the birds will be hushed. The goat-herd behind the hills will go homeward with his goats. Reptiles, taking courage from the gathering darkness, will creep through the fissures of rocks. The stars will begin to appear. Night will come. But yonder, two blank casements will still be staring at the sky. They open to welcome spirits and apparitions, for it is by the names of apparitions, ghosts, phantom faces, vaguely distinct, masks in the lurid light, mysterious movements of minds and shadows, that the popular faith, at once ignorant and profound, translates the sombre relations of this dwelling with the world of darkness. The house is haunted. The popular phrase comprises everything. Credulous minds have their explanation. Common-sense thinkers have theirs also. Nothing is more simple, say the latter, than the history of the house. It is an old observatory of the time of the Revolutionary Wars and the days of smuggling. It was built for such objects. The wars being ended, the house was abandoned. But it was not pulled down, as it might one day again become useful. The door and windows have been walled to prevent people entering or doing injury to the interior. The walls of the the windows on the three sides which face the sea have been bricked up against the winds of the south and southwest. That is all. The ignorant and the credulous, however, are not satisfied. In the first place, the house was not built at the period of the wars of the Revolution. It bears the date 1780, which was anterior to the Revolution. In the next place, it was not built for an observatory. It bears the letters Elmp-Bilg, which are the double monogram of two families, and which indicate, according to usage, that the house was built for the use of a newly married couple. Then it has certainly been inhabited. Why then should it be abandoned? If the door and windows were bricked up to prevent people entering the house only, why were two windows left open? Why are there no shutters, no window frames, no glass? Why were the walls bricked in on one side, if not on the other? The wind is prevented from entering from the south, but why is it allowed to enter from the north? The credulous are wrong, no doubt, but it is clear that the common-sense thinkers have not discovered the key to the mystery. The problem remains still unsolved. It is certain that the house is generally believed to have been more useful than inconvenient to the smugglers. The growth of superstitious terror tends to deprive facts of their true proportions. Without doubt, many of the nocturnal phenomena which have, by little and little, secured to the building the reputation of being haunted, might be explained by obscure and furtive visits, by brief sojourns of sailors near the spot, and sometimes by the precaution 
sometimes by the daring, of men engaged in certain suspicious occupations, concealing themselves for their dark purposes, or allowing themselves to be seen in order to inspire dread. At this period, already a remote one, many daring deeds were possible. The police, particularly in small places, was by no means as efficient as in these days. Add to this that if the house was really, as was said, a resort of the smugglers, their meetings there must, up to a certain point, have been safe from interruptions, precisely because the house was dreaded by the superstitious people of the country. Its ghostly reputation prevented its being visited for other reasons. People do not generally apply to the police or officers of customs on the subject of spectres. The superstitious rely on making the sign of the cross, not on magistrates and indictments. There is always a tacit connivance, involuntary it may be, but not the less real, between the objects which inspire fear and their victims. The terror-stricken feel a sort of culpability in having encountered their terrors. They imagine themselves to have unveiled a secret, and they have an inward fear, unknown even to themselves, of aggravating their guilt and exciting the anger of the apparitions. All this makes them discreet. And over and above this reason, the very instinct of the credulous is silence. Dread is akin to dumbness. The terrified speak little. Horror always seems to whisper, Hush! It must be remembered that this was a period when the Guernsey peasants believed that the mystery of the holy manger is repeated by oxen and asses every year on a fixed day, a period when no one would have dared to enter a stable at night for fear of coming upon the animals on their knees. If the local legends and stories of the people can be credited, the popular superstition went so far as to fasten to the walls of the house at Plemont things of which the traces are still visible, rats without feet, bats without wings, and bodies of other dead animals. Here, too, were seen toads crushed between the pages of a Bible, bunches of yellow lupin, and other strange offerings, placed there by imprudent passers-by at night who, having fancied that they had seen something, hoped by these small sacrifices to obtain pardon, and to appease the ill-humours of werewolves and evil spirits. In all times believers of this kind have flourished, some even in very high places. Caesar consulted Saganius, and Napoleon Mademoiselle Lenormand. There are a kind of consciences so tender that they must seek indulgences, even from Beelzebub. May God do and Satan not undo, was one of the prayers of Charles V. They come to persuade themselves that they may commit sins even against the evil one, and one of their cherished objects was to be irreproachable even in the eyes of Satan. We find here an explanation of those adorations sometimes paid to infernal spirits. It is only one more species of fanaticism. Sins against the devil certainly exist in certain morbid imaginations. The fancy that they have violated the laws of the lower regions torments certain eccentric casuists. 
They are haunted with scruples even about offending the demons. A belief in the efficacy of devotions to the spirits of the Brocken or Armour, a notion of having committed sins against hell, visionary penances for imaginary crimes, avowals of the truth to the spirit of falsehood, self-accusation before the origin of all evil, and confessions in an inverted sense, are all realities, or things at least which have existed. The annals of criminal procedure against witchcraft and magic prove this in every page. Human folly unhappily extends even thus far. When terror seizes upon a man, he does not stop easily. He dreams of imaginary faults, imaginary purifications, and clears out his conscience with the old witch's broom. Be this as it may, if the house at Plemont had its secrets, it kept them to itself, except by some rare chance no one went there to see. It was left entirely alone. Few people, indeed, like to run the risk of an encounter with the other world. Owing to the terror which it inspired, and which kept at a distance all who could observe or bear testimony on the subject, it had always been easy to obtain an entrance there at night by means of a rope ladder, or even by the use of the first ladder coming to hand in one of the neighbouring fields. A consignment of goods or provisions left there might await in perfect safety the time and opportunity for a furtive embarkation. Tradition relates that forty years ago a fugitive, for political offences as some affirm, for commercial as others say, remained for some time concealed in the haunted house at Plemont, whence he finally succeeded in embarking in a fishing boat for England, from England a passage is easily obtained to America. Tradition also avers that provisions deposited in this house remain there untouched, Lucifer and the smugglers having an interest in inducing whoever places them there to return. From the summit of the house there is a view to the south of the Hanway Rocks at about a mile from the shore. These rocks are famous. They have been guilty of all the evil deeds of which rocks are capable. They are the most ruthless destroyers of the sea. They lie in a treacherous ambush for vessels in the night. They have contributed to the enlargement of the cemeteries at Torteval and Roquen. A lighthouse was erected upon these rocks in 1862. At the present day, the Hanways light the way for the vessels which they once lured to destruction. The destroyer in ambush now bears a lighted torch in his hand, and mariners seek in the horizon, as a protector and a guide, the rock which they used to fly as a pitiless enemy. It gives confidence by night in that vast space where it was so long a terror, like a robber converted into a gendarme. There are three Hanways, the Great Hanway, the Little Hanway, and the Mauve. It is upon the Little Hanway that the red light is placed at the present time. This reef of rocks forms part of a group of peaks, some beneath the sea, some rising out of it. It towers above them all, like a fortress. It has advanced works. On the side of the open sea, a chain of thirteen rocks. On the north, two breakers. The high fourquier, the needles, and a sandbank called the Eroué. 
On the south, three rocks, the Cat Rock, the Perse, and the Airpin Rock, then two banks, the South Bank and the Muet, besides which there is, on the side opposite Plémont, the Tar de Poix d'Aval. To swim across the channel from the handways to Plémont is difficult, but not impossible. We have already said that this was one of the achievements of Clubin. The expert swimmer who knows this channel can find two resting places, the round rock, and, further on, a little out of the course to the left, the red rock. End of chapter 4 of Book 5 Recording by Paul Adams, www.yawnguy.com